You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open it up to the Gospel of Matthew where we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 20, looking at just a few verses, verses 19 or 17 through 19. So three verses, but I trust that there is plenty of truth in these three verses to cause your hearts to soar and draw you closer to the throne of grace this morning. Follow along with me. As I read, beginning in verse 17, Matthew writes, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, throughout history, there have been different ideas regarding the death of Jesus, and sadly, there's also been a lot of ideas that contradict the clear teaching of Scripture, but still they exist in the form of various theories that you can learn about today. Now, I won't dare try to list all of the theories out there, but I do want to point out that if you studied them, then one thing that you would notice is how most of them either view the death of Jesus as an accident, meaning that it was something completely unforeseen and unexpected, Or, they speak about how Jesus' death serves merely as an example of how God wants other people to live. In Jesus, people would say, we see a model for sacrificing oneself for the sake of others. In Jesus, we see what it means to lay down one's life and to truly love those around you. And, of course, There is a certain aspect to that which is true, but that is certainly not all that God intended to do by sending his son into the world. And we know this. Why? Because from the very moment one is introduced to the person of Jesus, particularly in Matthew, It's clear that Jesus is one who comes to save God's people from their sins. We saw that as early as Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. So that's pretty front and center, what Jesus has come to do. Yet there's this question, this lingering question in our minds, which is, well, how does that exactly Happen. We know Jesus has come to save God's people from their sins, but how does that all get worked out? And you know the thing that's interesting is you don't, you don't really learn about that at the beginning of the Gospels, do you? 
Well, now, ultimately, we know how it all gets worked out because we know how the story ends. And you look at every gospel and you have most of your material that's devoted to the death of Jesus, right? I mean, keep in mind, we, we celebrate Christmas and whenever we think about the birth of Jesus, it's always helpful to remember, you know, there's really not a lot said in regards to the birth of Christ. You have some material in Matthew, you have some material in Luke, but you know, that's about it. But most of what the Bible has to say in the Gospels is all directed towards the death of Jesus. But again, at the beginning, you're still kind of wondering, well, how, how does this all get worked out? And even as you think about the life of the disciples, as they spend time with Jesus, keep in mind that they don't have a clear picture of how this gets worked out. In fact, we have a much clearer picture today than what they had at that moment that they were following Christ. And so what we see is, over time, Jesus is having to alter their thinking. He has to inform them of what to expect from his life and what they will face along with him, particularly at the end of his life. And we especially see this come into focus when you get into Matthew chapter 16, right? Because what happens there? Well, we see this interaction between Jesus and Peter, if you've got your Bible open, just turn over there, flip back, Matthew chapter 16, focus in on verse 21, and what do we read? We read that, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. From that time, right, there comes a turning point in the ministry of Jesus where now this is going to be front and center, and the idea is that he began to teach and that he continued to teach about these things. Right, so the first 15 chapters then, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff you learn. We learn why Jesus is the only person who is uniquely qualified to be the king of God's kingdom. We've learned about the ethics of God's kingdom as we look through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've talked about what it means to enter God's kingdom, how one becomes a citizen of God's kingdom. But still that question of how is God's kingdom going to be established? How is God going to bring about salvation? And then this comes, and Jesus says this is how it's going to happen I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And of course, how is this received? Well, take a look at verse 22, Matthew 16. We read that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. No way, Lord. That, that can't be, that can't happen. But then, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Your thinking's worldly, Peter. It's man-centered. It is not the thoughts of God that are in your mind. So you have that interaction in Matthew 16. And then a chapter later, in Matthew 17, verse 22, 
we see Jesus tell the disciples again about his coming sufferings. Look there now. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Look at verse 22. Jesus says again, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. So there's a second prediction that Jesus is, is providing here, and then what happens after that response? Or after he mentions that a second time, we read, and the disciples were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed. So just... Just keep in mind, by the end of 17, right, Jesus has now predicted his death and resurrection twice, and yet both times, what happens? He has met with a less than ideal response. And why? Well, we've touched on this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. And it was because the disciples grew up with a firm belief that when the Savior came, that he would be a political and military Savior. And you go, why? Why were they thinking like this? Well, part of this was due to the fact that they knew the Messiah would be a son of David, right? A descendant from David, which had clear, royal, kingly overtones. But they also believed this because of what the Bible said about another well-known title of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And we read the Son of Man being mentioned here, right? He mentioned it in chapter 17. He mentions it here again. You may have noticed that the Son of Man is actually the favorite title that Jesus takes to himself. Now, he is referred to as the Christ, when people call him the Christ, he doesn't deny that title, but his favorite title is the Son of Man title. And you go, well, what's behind that? Well, uh, ultimately, scholars have kind of two conclusions. Uh, they say that uh, this is because Jesus is trying to present himself in terms of humility. If you look through uh, the, uh, the book of Ezekiel, you'll notice that Ezekiel himself is called a son of man, repeatedly, approximately 77 times or so. And, of course, think about what Ezekiel was experiencing. God was giving to Ezekiel grand, glorious visions of God. And so it seems that God was calling Ezekiel a son of man in order to remind him of his lowly estate. Almost as if to say, don't get conceited, Ezekiel, because at the end of the day, you're just made of clay. You're just a son of man. So, so there's some that conclude, well, this is a term of humility. And I would say that might be, that might be. But I actually don't think that is what's primarily in view. And I think that's what, what's mostly in view is actually that Jesus is trying to portray himself and help others understand that he is a coming ruler with power and divinity for a moment, just listen to the words of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory 
and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Ancient of Days is a picture of the Father, the Son of Man, one who comes and receives from the Father an inheritance. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And notice what's true of this kingdom. It's a kingdom that shall never pass away. It's a kingdom that will endure. It's a kingdom that will continue forever and ever and ever and will have no end. And so the Son of Man is not only king of the Jews, which was implied, again, by the title, the title Son of David, or the Messiah was not only the King of the Jews, but he is also King of Kings who will conquer the whole earth and judge all nations. So keep that in mind because as we look in our text, what is said of the Son of Man? He will be delivered over to chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him. Now I said that Jesus' favorite title is the Son of Man, just, uh, just so you understand how important that was to him, uh, he is referred to as the Son of Man a total of 82 times in the Gospels. 82 times. So now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Because what were they expecting? They were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, to be a lion, not a lamb. They were expecting him to trample out God's enemies and to establish God's kingdom. And this would have political dimensions to it, geographical dimensions to it, much how we think about kingdoms and lands today. But of course, that's not what he's come to do, at least at that moment, right? Because what is he trying to get through to them? I haven't come to rule at this moment. I haven't come to be a lion. I have come to be a lamb. I need to be a lamb first before I am a lion. And so you could think of it like this. Here's what the disciples having to do, or Jesus having to do with the disciples. He's trying to remind them again. You ever have problems just remembering things? This morning, I got a little update on my phone. It said that my screen time was down 18% this week. Any of you get that Sunday update from your phone? How many of you use the reminders function on your phone? Because it's like you just know you are not going to remember various things throughout the week. But you see, there's a difference here, right? I mean, there are, there are reasons we remember. Oftentimes, it just has to do with the fact that we're limited in our understanding and our ability to retain information. But the disciples, I think, that's not their problem. They're failing to remember and keep in mind what Jesus has to say because they don't really want it to be true. They, they, they don't want this to be the case. You, you mean, Jesus, you're going you're gonna to die? You're going to leave us? You're going to depart? You mean, you're not going to rule? You're not going to reign? Like, what's, what's going on? They're scared. They're nervous. They don't understand it all. And so here he is, having to explain it again. They might fight it, but Jesus is certain this is what has to take place. Consider the importance of sea. 
verse 17. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. See indicates a certain amount of resolution. It's as if Jesus is saying, it may seem startling to you. It it may seem shocking to you. It may seem surprising to you. You may not understand it, but I have to go to Jerusalem, and I will go to Jerusalem. There's conviction. There's resolution. It's a lot like that moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Consequently, then, here Jesus is reminding the disciples what he'll face. He is predicting what's going to take place, what he's going to experience when he gets to Jerusalem, which is now closer than it's ever been before. We are now nearing the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. And so there's three predictions that Jesus makes particularly about the sufferings that he will face. And we're going to look at those today. So what are those, the three predictions that Jesus makes? The first prediction is this. First, he said that he would be treacherously betrayed. That he would be treacherously betrayed. Look at verse 18. Now the text in the ESV doesn't say that he will be betrayed It says that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, but the NIV uses the word betrayed, and there's good reason for it, which is because we know the manner in which Jesus would be handed over to the religious leaders, right? And it would be through Judas giving him up to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. And you think about that, right? And and as you read about that account, And you just have to marvel over how he is also betrayed, right? Because how does it take place? He betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus knew what it was to have a friend turn on him. He knew what it was to be rejected by one of his closest companions. Friend, you may have discovered this already, but how quickly some people will turn on you when you end up getting in the way of what they want. Jesus understood that well. And so he's going to be taken advantage of. He is going to literally be sold out because of someone's greed. And this person who he invested his heart and soul into for three years all of a sudden is going to turn against him. So first, we see that he would be treacherously betrayed. Second, we see that he would be falsely condemned. He'd be falsely condemned. Now, the political dynamics in Jesus were a bit peculiar because on the one hand, the Romans were in charge, so everyone ultimately answered to them. But the Romans' way of governance was actually to allow for a certain amount of self-governance. And so because of this, the Jews were actually given latitude to deal specifically with their own people, uh, particularly on Jewish matters within their own customs, which they did through a governing body known as the Sanhedrin, which was established sometime between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So in terms of Jewish life then, the Sanhedrin was the highest court in Israel. And it was patterned after Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, where the Lord said to Moses to gather 70 men of the elders of Israel to serve as officers. Now, since ultimately there were 70 officers plus Moses, that meant there were 71 leaders whose job it was to govern the Israelites. Hence, the Sanhedrin also consisted of 71 members, with the breakdown being this, that you had 24 chief priests who were the heads of the 24 priestly divisions, which are listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Then you had 46 elders chosen from among the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. And then you had a high priest who acted as both the overseer and a voting member of the Sanhedrin, bringing the number to 71. And the odd number was helpful because, of course, it ensured that decisions could also or always be reached by a majority vote. That said, however, here's what you need to know about the Sanhedrin. By Jesus' day, it had become an overwhelmingly corrupt and politically motivated body. For example, things got so bad that eventually a man could buy an appointment to the council with political favors and sometimes with money. And so that meant favoritism and partisanship were all over the place. And since Rome ultimately exercised control over the priesthood, Rome could appoint or depose the high priest, which, as you might imagine, meant that a lot of decisions made by the Sanhedrin were made to appease Rome. And if that weren't bad enough, then also consider this, and it's something I've mentioned before, that actually the high priest and the ruling priests of the temple were all Sadducees who openly denied the supernatural. They were, in a sense, uh, uh, they were like people today who just believe science, and that's it. Nothing supernatural. Life's all physical. It's all material. God doesn't perform miracles. So it was a bad situation, but this is ultimately the court that seeks to condemn Jesus. And of course, they have to come up with trumped-up charges, right? They have to find some way to accuse him of wrongdoing. They have to invent evil against him. And what were some of those charges? What were some of those? Well, you had... Uh, the fact that they accused Jesus of blaspheming against God because he was claiming to be the Son of God, he was claiming to be equal with God. That was considered blasphemy. But they also regularly tried to present him as being one who was against Rome. Remember how many people came up, asked some questions about, hey, do you, do you pay the tax? Are you going to encourage rebellion against Caesar? And of course, that was an important angle for them because without Rome's support, there is very little that they could do. And so we know that in order for the death of Jesus to take place, a couple of things had to happen. They had to find something to accuse him of. And they also had to get the Romans involved as well. So we see that Jesus will... Uh, these things will occur. And then third, that he will also be tortuously killed. That he would be tortuously 
killed. And this is where Jesus would be given over to the Gentiles. So he's first given to the religious leaders by Judas, and then the religious leaders to the Gentiles when they handed him over to Pontius Pilate, who we know ultimately gives the order for Jesus and to be crucified. And this was also important for another reason, that you had both Jews and Gentiles involved in the death of Jesus. Because think of this, that if it were only the Jews who were responsible for Jesus' death, then, frankly, the guilt for Jesus' death wouldn't apply to all people. But it does. So it wasn't just the Jews that were responsible, it was the Gentiles too. Both groups were involved in his execution, therefore all people are accountable for his death. And as we think about his sufferings, just realize that in this third prediction of what Jesus is going to face, it is the most specific prediction that he's given yet. And particularly as it it pertains to his sufferings. So three features of Jesus' sufferings I want you to notice are pointed out here. First, we read how Jesus, he will be mocked. He will be mocked. And that is to say that he will be derided. He will be ridiculed. He will be teased. People will test him, laugh at him, make jokes at him. And we see this especially on display when you get to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Let me just read this for you. Get this picture in your mind. Again, hasn't happened yet. He's predicting it's going to happen. Of course, we know it does happen. Verse 27 in chapter 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So you have that mockery, that terrible display going on. They're role-playing with Jesus. Then you have it happen a little bit later in Matthew chapter 27. As you get to verse 41, we read, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We see a lot of humor out there in the world today. There is plenty of humor that can honor the Lord, but there is a kind of humor that scorns his holiness. There is a kind of humor that takes the holy, the sacred, and intentionally profanes it. In fact, um, it was about two years ago that I read a book written by Carl Truman. The name of the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I would commend it to you as a fantastic read about um, worldviews. And one, thing's, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is how Truman points out this thing called a death work. 
A death work. And you're going, what is a death work? A death work is an attempt oftentimes by an artist or a comedian or somebody else to denigrate and diminish something of respect, something holy, something sacred, something that various people esteem, particularly what Christians esteem. They are attempts to make especially values, look absolutely ridiculous. Keep in mind how evil it is, right? I mean, this is just a page right out of Satan's book. Satan's hope is always to subvert and destroy the sacred order. He focuses on the holy, and he attempts to make it look hilarious. And there's many ways he does this. Even today, we see how he does this and how he attacks the sacredness of sex, which he does through pornography, how he attacks the sacredness of people through abortion. But here, he attacks Jesus, who is the ultimate picture of purity and holiness, and makes him look despicable. So you had that going on. You had mocking that Jesus would endure. You also had flogging and here's how flogging worked particularly with the romans first a victim would be stripped of his clothes to expose bare skin he'd have his hands then tied to a post above his head and then someone would whip him and the whip was made of several pieces of leather with pieces of bone and lead embedded near the ends of it and They'd bring a person, and after tying them up, you'd have a person on each side. You'd have two people going at it. There'd be so many lashes that having two people do this ensured there was plenty of strength behind every whip. One medical doctor has described the experience like this. He said, the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first... The heavy thongs cut the skin, uh, cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial blood from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. It was to be completely awful, and this is why uh, many people didn't even make it to being crucified. They died after receiving the flogging. The Gospel of John indicates that Jesus was flogged before he was sentenced to die, Interesting, Matthew and Mark placed the flogging after the sentencing, and so for this reason, scholars sometimes suggest that Jesus may have received two floggings, one lighter flogging by Pilate during the trial, and then a more severe one just prior to his crucifixion. But given how damaging this was, many scholars go, well, we don't even know if that would have been possible. So he is to be mocked, he is to be flogged, and lastly, what else? He is to be crucified. So after the mocking, after the flogging, this is what took place. And this is the moment where somebody would carry a crossbeam 
to a spot where a stake had been erected. And at that moment, the person would then be nailed to the crossbeam. And the nails would grow, go through a person's wrists since the bones in the hand couldn't possibly take the weight of the body. The beam was then raised and fixed to the upright pole. Death came about oftentimes through the loss of blood circulation followed by coronary collapse. Oftentimes people would just affix, affix, die of asphyxiation. They would sit there and with every breath they would kind of push themselves up with their feet and then they'd come down again. And of course every time you came down you just felt the tugging and the pulling where you had been nailed. But you could only keep up the breaths for so long and you would eventually run out of strength so all of these things Jesus would suffer and then he would be raised and then glory would come but again just understand the pattern first humility then glory first suffering then salvation first lamb then lion first crucifixion then coronation that's the order. That's how it had to happen. And why? Simply put, because before Jesus would be a political savior, humanity had a greater need. And that was for a spiritual savior. They needed one who would save them from their sins. And friends, if you take nothing else away from today's message, let it be this, that Jesus comes not necessarily to be the Savior that people want, but he comes to be the Savior that they need. One who suffers for sin, one who substitutes himself in our place that we might have forgiveness. And of course, it wasn't that the physical sufferings were even the worst part of what Jesus endured, right? Because it was what came after. I mean, the physical torment that he endured was awful, it still doesn't come close to the fact that he would have to absorb the full weight of God's wrath for sin, for all sin, for all God's people, for all human history. He would receive the full payment for sin. And friends, I, I just want to maybe highlight this for a moment because... Here's something I, I noticed kind of happening around us with kind of the current state of the church. One thing I notice is there's a lot less preaching about the Savior that we need and, and a whole lot of preaching about the Savior that people want. And it wasn't too long ago, just a matter of weeks ago, that I attended an outreach event in Fargo. And it was, it was quite an interesting event to attend it involved, you know, what you'd expect in terms of outreaches. There was a concert. There was musicians. But you had, you had students come out at the beginning of this outreach, a, a girl and then two guys, and the girl got up there, and I mean, whoo! Like, she just presented a very clear gospel. She spoke about sin. She spoke about our need to repent and turn to Jesus. And then when you got to the main evangelist for the event, the guy who was expected to preach the gospel, what did you hear? 
Things like, are you lonely? Are you affected by bullying? Aren't you just sick of racism in the world? Come to Jesus. And I'm thinking there the whole time, we could have been done with this event after the girls shared the gospel. But we waited to hear you share a message that wasn't the gospel. And maybe you're thinking, well, what was wrong with that message? It's very different to preach the benefits of the gospel than to preach our need for the gospel, the true need for the gospel. And you, and you hear that a lot today. People will say things like, are you depressed? Are you lonely? Come to Jesus. And listen, friends, Jesus is wonderful for so many reasons. He, he is wonderful for the fact that we receive a relationship with him. He is a wonderful Savior for the fact that we get to have His presence with us always and forever when we turn to Him. But the greatest problem we face isn't that we're depressed or that we're lonely. The greatest problem we face is that we live in rebellion against God. And so here's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to solve that great dilemma between us and God. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all deserving of his wrath, all deserving of his judgment. And the great question remains, how will God allow us to enter his heaven? One has to stand in our place and receive the wrath of God. And that's Jesus. He comes to shed his blood for sin, to atone for sin, to pay the price for sin. And does that change life? You better believe it. It changes everything. But guess what? There are still going to be plenty of times as a Christian where you're still going to be lonely. Where you still feel depressed maybe extremely depressed and you got to point that out because it's like if Jesus just takes care of all of these other problems then it's like when I experience loneliness again when I experience depression again then what did Jesus fail me no because guess what he's not just going to eradicate all this as long as we live in a fallen world we can expect experiences of a fallen world And so, friends, take this to heart. Jesus is indeed the Savior that we need. And he comes to suffer in our place, and it was no accident, like no accident at all. What happened to Jesus? It wasn't like, you know, there was just a bad turn in a nice revolution. It wasn't that Jesus was a misguided patriot or that he was a well-meaning peacekeeper, peacekeeper whose revolution went array. His death and subsequent sufferings were foretold, expected, and planned out in advance to take place. And of course, that's what you have to marvel over, right? Because what does this prove once again to us that Jesus can so accurately, so specifically, so carefully predict what he will face as he goes into Jerusalem and they all come to pass? He is the prophet that's been sent by God. He is one who comes 
He is the new Moses. And everything that takes place takes place in perfect accordance with the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 says that he would enter into Jerusalem. Psalm 2, that he would know the fury and rage of his enemies. Zechariah 13.7, that he'd be deserted by his friends. Zechariah 11.12, that his betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22.16, that he'd be pierced on the cross. Exodus 12.46, that none of his bones would be broken. Psalm 22.18, that his garments would be parted by casting of lots. Psalm 69.21, that he'd be given vinegar to drink. Psalm 22.1, he would cry out in the pain of distress. Zechariah 12.10, that he'd be pierced with a spear. And Psalm 16.10, that he will rise from the dead. And friends, that is, that is why we trust in Jesus. Because no, he did not just die for sin, but he was raised vindicating the purposes and plans of God. And because he was raised, this we know, he is truly God. And he is able, he is able to save you from sin. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.